Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which we were excited to host our guest today at our most recent SALT conference in September in New York. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. We're very excited today to welcome Raghu Yarlagata to SALT Talks. Uh, Raghu is a co-founder and uh, the CEO of FalconX, which is one of the largest and fastest growing digital asset brokerages. He's an engineer by background uh, and passionate about building products that create value leading him to become a serial entrepreneur, product leader, active investor, and board advisor to several Silicon Valley startups. Prior to FalconX, Raghu held product leadership roles uh, at Google. He was on Sundar Pichai's uh, Chrome operating system team and led efforts to scale Chromebooks to over $3 billion in revenue for Google and its partners. Uh, he started his career at Motorola as an engineer in a team that pioneered high-definition video transmission over IP stack laying the technical foundation for many popular video streaming services, such as Netflix and YouTube. Uh, Raghu holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, a master's from the University of Texas at Dallas, specializing in signal processing and machine learning, and a bachelor's in technology from Valor Institute of Technology. And one thing that really, uh, you know, when it comes to crypto and you see people that are involved in this ecosystem with backgrounds like Raghu, it makes me confident that we're doing the right things here at Skybridge and at Salt in terms of diving into this ecosystem. Ragu, way smarter than either of the other people on this call. So it's great to have you here, uh, Ragu. And it was great having you at Salt back in September. And hosting today's talk is somebody who I mentioned not nearly as smart as Ragu, but we let him on here anyways. His name is Anthony Scaramucci. He's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm with about a billion dollars in total crypto assets uh, invested in all of our flagship funds. Uh, and with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. He's getting cocky, Ragu. Let me tell you why he's getting cocky, okay? He gets fan mail and he reads his own commentary on these YouTube channels for Salt about how he looks like a 1980s matinee idol, you know? <laughs> so I got to listen to this stuff all the time. And then on one event, somebody said, why don't you retire Scaramucci, put him out the pasture, okay? So he's getting cocky, Ragu. Just want to make sure you know that, okay? But let's let's go to you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Why? What was the eureka moment? Like, how did you recognize the monumental and exponential changes that were taking place as a result of digital assets and the blockchain? Yeah, and that's a great question. And uh, thanks so much for having me, Anthony and John. I think uh, truly is a pleasure to be on. A quick background, I started my career as an engineer, as John mentioned, and after that, seed entrepreneurship. I went to the dark side, which is what I call the business school. Right after HBS, I was uh, at Google. Now, some of the brightest engineers uh, that I know at uh, Google, including the ones that worked on uh, worked with Larry and Sergey in the very early days of Google, they were gung-ho about blockchain. And for me, as an engineer, like, you know, this is around the 2016, 2017 timeframe, I was. I felt that blockchain is a very ineffective. Uh, it's not so efficient database because you're replicating copies of data every single, uh, you know, so many places. But all my life, I chased the brightest engineers. I worked with them for about a an year. And Anthony, what became very clear is 
a lot of world's value is going to be tokenized in the next five to seven years. And uh, crypto is the first use case of it. I don't think crypto is everything. Crypto is the first use case. The next, you see stable coins tokenizing fiat very fast. The third thing is NFTs tokenizing art and culture. Uh, and eventually tokenized equities and uh, fixed income markets. But the Eureka moment, as, as you termed it, uh, Anthony, if you look at all of consumer internet companies, right? I mean, the big consumer internet companies that has billion people on their platforms, they're all struggling with the same dichotomy. The dichotomy is that the users who's these, uh, which these platforms are serving, their incentives are not aligned very well with the platforms themselves. The users believe that the platforms are using their data without consent, and the platforms have no other way to basically monetize because these are free products. So we use AI, machine learning, and so many different tools to basically bridge that incentive gap, but nothing uh, is as powerful as blockchain. To give you an example, if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain, uh, the world's largest comp- uh, country blocked Bitcoin uh, mining, right? This is China, like, you know, uh, in the middle of last year. And literally all of mining capacity, which is about 70% of world's mining capacity, was kicked out of China a matter of two weeks. If it's a centralized company, it would have failed. That's about it. But Bitcoin bounced back in a matter of two months, which is a much more diversified uh, hash rate. So that is the Eureka moment in that a lot of consumer internet companies will eventually tokenize themselves to align the user uh, incentives better. And blockchain is proving uh, at scale that that's happening. So very big success for you because you recognized it and then you took actionable business decisions to realize profit opportunity and economic rent for yourself and your clients. Take us through that step. You see it. It's one thing academically to see something, but now you turn it into something wonderfully commercial. Tell us about that. Yeah, I think. Uh, the genesis for that is like, you know, again, uh, as the world is tokenizing, I was thinking about what the companies that are going to be the front and center of the tokenization. Uh, what I felt is like, uh, as the world tokenizes, the world needs the gateway, especially institutions need the gateway to access these tokenized assets. Uh, very similar to Skybridge, Anthony, a lot of world's leading institutions as an asset class becomes mainstream, 60 to 80% of that asset class is going to be uh, like, you know, institutions. So back when we started the company in 2018, uh, like, you know, people were like, what institutional crypto? That doesn't exist. Institutions are not there. But our belief is, as the world tokenizes, as the asset class becomes mature, 60 to 80% are going to be institutions. And these institutions need a gateway. Because when Anthony is buying Bitcoin, he's not looking to just buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin. He's looking to experience the future. What are these dislasses and why are they uh, so profound? And he wants to understand like, what the world looks through dislasses. And that is something that we wanted to provide uh, at scale. So we started FalconX about uh, three and a half years back, Anthony, and uh, it was a fascinating ride. In three and a half years, we built one of the most valuable institutional companies in the world. And for three and a half years, for the most part, I didn't have a sales team, marketing team, or a growth team. It was organically customers referring each other and coming over. And that's partly because we're riding this you know, big wave of like the world getting digitized and tokenized. Why I have you a name question Fal- for you, Ragu. Anthony, okay, you mind ahead. if I jump in? No, go ahead. I wanted to know why, though, you named it Falcon X. Why'd you name it Falcon X? <laughs> go ahead. And then John can ask his question. 
That is a fantastic question, Anthony. Um, I'll skip the politically correct answer. I'll give you the truth. Uh, 2010, uh, my wife and I like just got married and we are waking up every single day. We're comfortable, good jobs, excited and all of that. We're not waking up with inspiration every single morning. It's like it, it became too comfortable, too easy. Uh, I wouldn't say too easy, but too comfortable. At that time, what started as a joke is like, I promised my wife that in this lifetime, we'll go to another planet. It started as a joke, Anthony. I mean, we weren't serious. But the idea slowly took over our lives. So much so that in 2015, 2016, all my friends from Google were buying fancy houses, Anthony. Came back home and uh, like, you know, hey, man, Deepthi, should we buy a house? It's like, if you're going to another planet this lifetime, why do you need a house back here? End of discussion. We never bought a house. So our life's mission, jointly, is to go to another planet it's as much a spiritual journey as it's a physical journey. And as we embark on that journey, every single thing that we're doing from that point on is towards that mission. So Falcon X, I mean, I'm excited that digital assets are going to be changing the world. Through digital assets, hopefully I'll get uh, the financial means, not only impacting the world positively, but the financial means to go to another planet. So what started as a placeholder name uh, like, you know, Falcon is one of the fastest birds. Falcon is also a launch system uh, within SpaceX. What started as a placeholder name merging, you know, Falcon, the, the fastest bird on the planet to X, highly experimental. And people love that name. In, I thought institutions wouldn't dig it. But the recall, whenever we mention Falcon X, the recall from institutions is, oh, I remember that. I don't know what they do, but I remember them. So we stuck with the name three and a half years uh, in. I think, it's, I think it's a great name, which is why I asked. I, I'm, I'm going to let John ask his question. I just want it on the record. He said it was an absolutely great question, John. Let me just, I got to scratch <laughs> on my nose here. Let me just, he, he doesn't get a lot of those, Raghu, so he's got to cherish them when he does. Raghu, I'm, <laughs> I'm loving you more. Raghu, I loved you before this started. I'm loving you more right now. Go ahead, Darcy. Go ahead. So my question, Raghu, given that you come from Google, we'll call that Web 2, and you're now involved in Web 3 at a, a crypto company or a blockchain company, there's been a lot of noise around Web 3. What is Web 3? How do you really define it? You know, somebody like Jack Dorsey is, you know, comes out, he's, he's very against this idea of Web 3. He thinks it's just a, a rebranding of crypto for VCs to make it more palatable for certain investors or certain members of, of their communities. Moxie Marlinspike, who's the co-founder of Signal, recently wrote a really uh, thoughtful blog post about what he thinks are the opportunities and challenges uh, within what people deem as Web3. So how would you define what Web3 is versus Web2 and even Web1? What's the evolution of the internet and how do you define Web3? Yeah. Uh, let's talk about Web1 first. I mean, the first version of the internet was largely read-only, John. Essentially, like, you know, you digitize information, you put it on a website so that a lot of people can come in and read. Think of it like the Wikipedias, right? And Google giving uh, being the gateways to access all this information where people type in a, a website or search for something, they land on a page, they simply read. That's about it. There's no engagement. There's no right from the user standpoint. It's just consuming information one way. Now, that is very similar to the, the world prior to the internet, right? I mean, you have these news, news channels and all these different media outlets that are giving information, but they're not actually absorbing information through the same channel. So Web 1 was heavily modeled after that. Now, Web 2 became a much more interactive version of that. 
you can not only read information, but you can interact with it, which is like you can post comments, you can give feedback, you can post pictures and your friends can like it. So that triggered an entire revolution of like, you know, uh, the two directional, bi-directional communication on the, on the internet. So that's largely WebG. But for Web 1 and Web 2, one of the underlying building blocks is highly centralized companies that are building vertical services, meaning uh, let's take Facebook, for example. Facebook, yes, you can go to Facebook, post a picture, get a bunch of likes and uh, like you know engage with your community slash family. But all of that data is underlying owned by one centralized company, Facebook. And the problem that we've seen is that worked really well early on because it gave you speed, it gave you, uh, you know, great user experience. But the problem is once these companies get bigger and bigger and bigger, the alignment of incentives, the alignment of interests, all of that was like, we were never able to align the interest of like, you know, 1.5, 2 billion people on Facebook with the company's own interests. The monetization models broke, uh, the data privacy broke. As a result, these platforms are beginning, becoming too big to scale. So the path forward for these platforms are either they'll be heavily regulated or broken down, uh, which is what most people are speculating. So that is the birth for like, you know, Web3, which is like, why can't we power this highly interactive uh, internet where you can read, engage with the content and all of that good stuff. And even better, we'll actually decentralize the ownership of that data. It might sound very technical, but the power of it translating in very simple terms, Sean, the power of it is for the very first time, you're actually deeply in aligning the incentive of communities with the platform. For example, someone posts a video on YouTube. Yes, YouTube is a centralized company that's giving up like, you know, some revenue share or returns to the you know, moderator, sorry, to the content creators. But what if the content creators itself own the platform? They're heavily incentivized to do the right thing. They have control over the economic rewards. And if you're a developer, if you're building an app on one of these platforms, you can control the revenue that you could potentially get and be a part of it. In the financial world, the language that we all can understand really well, what if we bank with one of the largest banks in the world and also can control the bank? So once you can control the bank, there is a lot of trust, confidence, and incentive alignment of actually doing the right thing for the bank. So that's what Web3 is in relationship with Web2 and Web1. That's very well said, Raghu. I've read and heard a lot of different explanations, but that was very well said. Anthony, I'll turn it back over to you before I dive in with more of my questions. So we're in a fast-moving market. We were in crypto summer in October of 2021. We're now in crypto winter in January of 2022. So how do you feel about all that? Uh, my guess is you're probably comfortable with it, but new investors are probably not. John and I have experience with retail investors. I like the joke that everybody Ragu is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. The minute they have short-term losses, they go crazy. So tell us your investment philosophy and how do you deal with, let's call it crypto volatility at large? Yeah. Having seen many of these cycles before, at least two or three of these cycles, uh, Anthony, the one thing that is um, different and a little bit more sustainable than last few cycles, if you look at what crypto is doing, it's largely tracing the broader markets, namely your traditional equities. 
And uh, like, you know, the big use case that powered the last one and a half years of crypto is like, you know, digital assets that was an inflationary hedge. The world is printing a lot of money for the right reasons. As the world is printing a lot of money, you need digital scarcity. The world needed a better gold. So digital assets, like, you know, institutions came in and there's massive digital asset adoption from institutions. And that led to a tremendous growth. Along with that growth, if you look at this as an inflationary hedge and as Fed continues to taper in a very calculated manner, the market is reacting to it and it's expected, right? I mean, you ex- inflation is at expected to be Wednesday, we are going to be getting the numbers. They're expecting the number to be around 7, 7.1%. That's sizable inflation. So Fed is acting on it. As a result, the, inf- the quote unquote inflationary hedge are bound to trace back a little bit. That's happening in the broader markets as well. Now, what we're seeing with digital assets across the board is basically tracing back with the traditional markets. But the good news is this kind of pressure relief in a calculated, in a controlled burn fashion is extremely important. If there is no pressure release in a controlled manner like this, what happens is the market panics. Traditional markets panic too. But the uh, thing with traditional markets is because of the amount of institutional players, I think you see a bottom, it's much more controlled chaos. But in crypto, because there is a lot of retail also involved, if the market panics, it's going to go down very fast. But in this case, because it's a controlled burn, it seems to release the pressure and a little bit of froth in the system. The last two times this controlled burn happened, when the the market uh, crypto corrects along with the broader markets, but when the market comes back, it actually comes back much higher. The second very big insight that we are seeing, Anthony, as of this morning, some of the largest retail exchanges on the planet are experiencing thin liquidity and very low volumes in line with the traditional space. But if you look at NFTs, OpenSea posted one of their record months. While one part of crypto is actually experiencing very thin liquidity and low volumes, the other part of the uh, ecosystem, which is namely a new use case of NFTs, that is becoming that is showing signs of very good health. So that diversity also shows the maturity of this class. It's beyond just the inflationary hedge. So overall, if I you know spoke with uh, the world's largest hedge fund yesterday. Um, what they're thinking about digital assets is they're not actually very worried. In the short term, they expect volatility and range-bound action. But in the mid to long term, the very interesting thing is a lot of private investors, a lot of investors, including the ultra-large uh, funds, the trillion-dollar-plus asset classes, they're coming and investing in private markets, which actually shows the mid to long-term interest in digital assets. Have you ever looked at Algorand? Of course. What do you think? But you can give your honest opinion, even though I'm a bull. <laughs> so I don't see a world where uh, it's just one or two blockchains, Anthony, simply because the, if the world is tokenizing, the world is not just one use case. If you believe that the assets in the world are going to be tokenized, crypto, fiat, NFTs, and all of that, you're talking about very different use cases. Bitcoin is an exceptional blockchain but it's primarily the use cases centered around inflationary hedge and different use case, Ethereum programmability. But I'm excited about the algorithms of the world because they're serving the use case of scalability, right? They're serving the use case of high transactions. They're serving the use case of like intersecting with other blockchains very seamlessly. The world needs multiple blockchains to solve different set of use cases. Also interoperability though too, right? Ability to cross blockchain, right? 
Yeah, they're intersecting with different blockchains because for an institution, Anthony, you look at yield. You don't look at yield only on X blockchain. So what that means is you want underlying blockchains to interoperate. Whoever can solve that interoperability really well, I think there's a lot of economic value that they can capture. Now, what I like about Algorand is like there are a lot of blockchains which are all speak. The developer community in Algorand is pretty good. They are constantly making progress, even during these moves where the market is moving sideways. John? Yeah, my, my question for you, Raghu, you deal with a lot of institutions. So you just uh, talked about how you were speaking with the world's largest hedge fund. You know, we are sort of straddled the institutional and the more retail world as well. Um, are we seeing institutional adoption continue to increase with crypto? There's a couple of different theories on why sort of price has stalled out for Bitcoin and Ethereum and some other tokens recently. One is just it's tracking general market sentiment, as you mentioned, you know, we're sort of in a risk-off environment right now. The other is that we're just struggling to find the marginal buyer of cryptocurrencies at this point. You have the institutions that have been early adopters, you have, you know, retail uh, continues to, to trickle in, uh, but we are struggling to get, uh, you know, further ratification from regulators that might bring a, a larger swath of the institutional community into the space. What is the commentary you're seeing from institutions more more broadly about their involvement in crypto? And do you expect institutional penetration into crypto markets to increase over the next 12 months? Or what would be the catalyst for that to happen? It's a great question, John. Um, what we are hearing, it is true, the data is clear that in the last one month, the AUM expansion from traditional institutions into digital assets, it's, it's slowed down a little bit. Uh, we've seen institutions go from like, you know, half, half or uh, 50 basis points of AUM to about 3%, 4%. It was on a very strong trajectory towards the 7, 8% of uh, AUM coming into uh, digital assets, but it slowed down a little bit over the last one month, somewhere in the middle of December to now, it, the growth slowed down a little bit. So we were very curious. So we polled three different personas, like we polled the hedge funds, we polled asset managers, and we polled some of the retail aggregators, institutions that face retail customers. Um, the first two personas, which is the hedge funds and the asset managers, they're waiting for, they're waiting to basically see three things in a risk-off environment. If the market continues to be risk-off, they're waiting on three things to basically continue the path of uh, increased adoption or increased buying dislasses. The first and foremost, um, a little bit more regulatory clarity. It is very interesting that China banned and U.S. in a matter of two, three weeks took the stance that we are not banning, we're going to be regulating. More recently, SEC hired someone to look into this class. It's much more proactively. Same thing with New York BFS. So while these things are welcome sign, institutions are looking for a little bit more clarity in terms of how U.S. reacts to it. U.S. is the regulatory leader for most other countries. So a lot of institutions, even in Asia, are looking up to the U.S. in terms of providing the regulatory clarity. The first thing they're expecting is hey, uh, about stable coins, because that could be a very interesting sign of what's to come. And U.S. government seems to be focused on stable coins as a starting point and eventually to other assets. So regulatory clarity is one thing that they're waiting for. The second thing is like yield. In a regime where inflation is as high, every institution is also thinking about generation of yield in a risk-adjusted manner. So the very few places that can give you 7 to 8% in a sustainable manner, right? When your big banks are paying you 20, 30, 40 basis points versus 700 basis points in digital assets, yield is looking very interesting in crypto. But even now, 
we see institutions coming in because of uh, that yield but they want to understand the robustness of the protocols that are powering this yield so like you know they're talking about protocols like compound awe and things like that the third thing that institutions are looking for is use case diversification they're very closely watching nfts and play to earn because beyond the inflationary hedge if these other use cases also gain significant traction the the entire asset class is not predicated on one major use case it's actually diversified that reduces the risk so it's surprising one of the largest asset manager hired a team of like you know 20 yard 20 year olds a team of four or five people to sp- educate the broader form of nfts and play to earn that i found was surprising i was expecting this is one of the biggest brands in the world and i just went to the meeting and it was like four people who just graduated out of college I was like how is it going bro is the opening of that meeting i never expected that so <laughs> these guys are very actively uh, learning about nfts and play to earn to see what use cases will get the next traction yeah like you mentioned there's this huge uh, cultural aspect of crypto where asset managers and companies are having to talk to teenagers about what's the next wave of culture that's coming through so they can stay on top of it um and it really informs them you mentioned stable coins earlier and uh i've heard you talk about stable coins before to me stable coins are a fascinating fascinating aspect of crypto and something that i think has the potential to transform the way we move money and the way we treat money around the world uh we were recently at a conference where jeremy alaire the founder of circle mm-hmm. uh w- was giving his opinion that there's all these talk uh, talks about you know digital asset uh, central bank digital currencies excuse me um and whether countries are going to come out with their own assets the way that that China has uh, his opinion was that instead of trying to roll out a central bank digital currency which sort of betrays the ethos of crypto as being somewhat decentralized and privatized uh governments like the United States government should just more actively regulate and participate in stablecoin markets uh with existing creators of of those technologies What's your view of the stablecoin market and how it'll generally change, you know, the financial system as a whole? So, let's first talk about like, you know, what are stablecoins uh, used for, right? Once we understand the use case, we can, you know, extend into that argument of whether it's centralized stablecoins or decentralized stablecoins. In terms of the use case, John, uh, I've seen enough institutions come in to bitcoin with bitcoin ethereum as an inflationary hedge. They quickly realize that why we Like in a 24/7 market, why are we not trading on the weekends? My balance sheet efficiency is low because I'm just using this for 40, 50 hours a week when the market is 24/7. Uh, it's quickly it's like, oh, banks don't work. So as a result, how do we actually like you know operate in 24/7? So instead of using banks, they all try stablecoins very transactionally. So from a stablecoin adoption perspective. primarily a lot of institutions got exposed to stablecoins as like you know i need to be to solve the use case of i need to be able to trade over the weekends as they started using stablecoins then you'll see a lot more benefits in terms of true 24/7 elastic you can get yield on stablecoins all of that good stuff so that's the use case that stablecoins are driving in institutions now is the world centralized or is it decentralized i think of it uh, as like an analogy of nasa and spacex the world needs both nasa and spacex right spacex on the privatized side of uh, exploration and commercial endeavors nasa on a much more longer term like you know changing the underlying rails for the financial system on the, uh, the the space ecosystem for the world likewise i don't think the world is going to be 
uh, as simple as it's all going to be decentralized stable coins and that's about it. There is a role for governments to actively come with CBDCs and also tokenize these CBDCs. Maybe not to the same extent as privatized stable coins, but a government-backed stable coin could be very powerful in bringing the next billion users to crypto. Because, yeah, if you look at it, U.S. government is the biggest, one of the biggest brands on the planet. It's going to be very powerful if U.S. government or a similar a large government launches a CBDC. I personally think that accelerates tremendous adoption into crypto. Now. Private stable coins are like, you know, definitely the beds for innovation and they're going to be pushing the boundaries. But I see a world which requires both because institutions are always going to respect government and government backed, uh, you know, stable coins, at least to what we are hearing so far. Right. Yeah, it would be interesting to see. You see all these airdrops that have been happening, whether it's SOS token or the looks token for this new NFT platform looks rare. Uh, it'd be interesting if the U.S. government said, you know what? We're going to, instead of doing a stimulus check that goes into your bank account, we're going to do an airdrop of, uh, you know, U.S. dollar stable coins uh, and see how that drives adoption into the crypto world. Um, I, I have a question. I for one sec? I yeah, go ahead, ask him about his opinion of the regulation, because I know you guys are tracking it closely. And we saw uh, Chairman Gensler on television this morning. Um, seems like he's slow rolling crypto in general. What are your thoughts there? Anthony, I mean, the one thing that crypto missed or dislasses missed since 2000, you know, as the white paper came out on uh, Bitcoin blockchain, crypto underestimated, dislasses underestimated the need as an industry, underestimated the need and the power of having institutions in the space. Institutions serve a very healthy function in terms of stabilizing the markets, looking much more longer range. So there is tremendous amount of benefits of institutions playing in dislacets. assets. Now, if you want to want institutions to play in dislacets, assets, institutions are not going to enter the space without regulatory clarity. That is very clear. Whether you're the world's largest hedge fund, asset managers, retail aggregators, it doesn't matter. Institutions deeply care about regulation. They can innovate, they can innovate and they can basically push the boundaries a little bit, but most institutions will never, most reputed institutions will never cross the line of the law. From that standpoint, my customer base, because we only serve institutions, one of the first questions that we get in the Delgin's questions, uh, Delgin's documents is like, hey, talk about your regulatory path, uh, regulatory roadmap. So in digital assets as an ecosystem benefits if institutions are there. Institutions deeply care about regulation. So converse, if you stitch both of these things, I think it's very important for regulators to be proactive in crypto. Now, I'll tell you, the, in my opinion, what's the good path and what's the not so great path. The good part is all regulators are staffing up their agencies to understand crypto. U.S. and associated countries, including India, they came out and said that we are not going to be banning crypto. That is a huge sign versus China, who's taking a very aggressive approach in terms of banning. So the first thing, the good news is agencies are staffing up to understand they're not banning. They see that crypto already passed the tipping scale and they're moving forward. The not so great news is crypto is not the only, understandably so, it's not the only thing on their agenda. As a result, progress has been slow, especially for firms like FalconX, which are like living and breathing crypto. It's like, come on, guys, we need to move faster, faster, faster. But the progress of regulatory uh, clarity has been slower. Uh, so that's one thing that I hope uh, it changes in 2022 a bit more. 
So Falcon X Ragu um, is among many private companies in the crypto world that have been raising money hand over fist from you know institutional investors, investors of all types. You know, there's in a lot of ways there's more money flooding from you know venture investments into the crypto world than there has been price appreciation in in cryptocurrencies uh, over the last several months. Um, what are you planning to do with all of this newfound capital that you're raising? And what do you think in general, a lot of these private companies, you know, OpenSea is an example that was uh, six months ago was at a billion and a half dollar valuation. They just raised at 13 billion. And these companies are raising hundreds of millions of dollars. How is that money going to be deployed within Falcon X and within the industry uh, to help take the industry forward? Yeah, I mean, first, really quantifying the statement that you made uh, is private coming is a lot of money coming into private uh, companies absolutely yes yeah the very interesting fact is it's no longer just the vcs funding crypto companies it's crossover funds like the hedge funds basically going uh, into private investing the ultra large asset managers the trillion dollars plus asset managers coming into this assets we are seeing a tremendous amount of inbound from pretty much not just the VCs, but every major like you know, financial persona coming into the space. And when we asked them why, they all point to the underlying trend of crypto and digital assets basically breached the tipping point. It's no longer an optional thing or it's no longer a thing that may happen, may not happen. We see a future where digital assets are going to be a very integral part, whether it's crypto, whether it's NFTs or tokenized equities eventually. If the world is tokenizing, they're heavily investing into that future. So mid to long term, in terms of investing into private companies, that trend is very strong. Even now, when the market is moving sideways, uh, the number of uh, people reaching out didn't slow down. Maybe the valuations will get adjusted a little bit, but the amount of uh, interest is like, I'm surprised, right? Now, in terms of how is that beneficial? The first and foremost, once you have this amount of money come in and this amount of smart money that's shaping up the future, without the pressure for building for the short term, this quality of money comes in. I've seen three profound things happen. And this is same, uh, very true with Web 1 and Web 2 internet companies as well. First and foremost, you'll actually start building a much more stable or long-term, mid to long-term centric products. The user experience and the product stability is one thing crypto missed over the last three to four years. That is going to change significantly with the quality of money that's coming in. Because no VC, no crossover, uh, respectful uh, crossover fund is going to come in and only care about the next quarter. They're like, how do you take over the world in the next three to five years? So from that standpoint, the vision for crypto is going to be much more longer term, which means much more stable products. Number two, I'm very excited about this. All this money is going to translate into marketing dollars as well. Educating the world about what are digital assets. It's not just the temporal price action that we see on a day-to-day -day basis. You can, for the very first time, have access to financial services 24-7. You can, for the very first time, reach to that farmer in India who you're never able to reach to the traditional banking sector. So all of this marketing is going to educate and bring in the next billion users into crypto. The third thing, regulators. Now we'll all have dollars to actually work with regulators, educate them, uh, and also uh, share perspective on how we see the world evolve. So better products, better market education, better collaboration and coordination with regulators is what we already started seeing, Jack. 
And in terms of Falcon X, what you guys bring to the marketplace, you know, what is your unique value proposition so that our listeners can understand, you know, what you guys are doing specifically? Absolutely. So we are a disclassed brokerage specifically for institutions. I'll break the term institutions. We serve a very diverse set of institutions, all the way from the world's largest funds, asset managers, to retail aggregators, to crypto native funds. For these diverse set of institutions, we do three things as a brokerage. Trading, credit, clearing. Trading, the job to be done is like, how do I get really, really good, reliable pricing in a form factor that I care about? If Anthony is like, hey, I'm not going to buy $100 million worth of Bitcoin, clicking a few buttons on the screen, you have the white glove desk. If a hedge fund wants to basically programmatically buy $100 million of Bitcoin, like using a TVAP, you have an API for that. So on the trading side, it's very good, reliable pricing in a form factor that you care about. Credit is wrapping that pricing in a layer of credit solutions, whether it's margin, leverage, delayed settlements. Clearing is safely storing these asset assets and moving them from point A to point B because some of the world's biggest asset managers, when they deal with crypto, oh my goodness, I need to rebalance my inventory across all these exchanges at 2 a.m. in the night because crypto is 24-7. That's a pain. We remove all of that friction through one single portal. You can rebalance all your assets anywhere. So that's the clearing side. So FalconX is a digital asset brokerage for institutions supporting trading, credit, and clearing. Very good. And in terms of if you look three to five years out, you know, we've talked about some of the short term challenges as it relates to you know, risk off environment, regulatory uncertainty, things like that. What do you think the next big waves that we're going to see over the next three to five years? We talked earlier about the explosion of the NFT market in spite of weaker cryptocurrency markets. What are some of the next waves that we're going to see in sort of the Web3 universe? Yeah, I'd break that into three buckets, John. The first thing is, I think cryptocurrencies, like, you know, which is the first instance, uh, instance of digital assets, they'll bounce back and I think they'll continue to do well because we, while Fed is basically tapering aggressively and that is needed for that quote unquote controlled burn, inflation is continue, is going to be a very real thing over the next three to five years. World, you know, you've seen Omicron. Uh, the data from Omicron and how fast it's spreading, um, you know, and we are hearing a word of like you know, new strains called Deltacron and things like that. As these things come in, the feds are going to use monetary policy to actually help the economy come out of uh, like, you know, potential recessions. As a result, inflation is a thing that we need to be planning for. Yes, while we are going through this local maximum of tapering, uh, the world is going to continue to print money in that world inflationary hedges like digital assets are going to be powerful. That use case, I think, will continue in the next three to five years. The second thing, NFTs eventually are a building block to what, what I call or what we all are discussing as metaverse. That's a very powerful notion, John, because metaverse re-renders what internet is. The way you experience internet, the way we, you experience these meetings has fundamentally not changed in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, better Zoom, better call quality, better video, yeah. But totally immersing yourself in the world of internet and how powerful it could be for learning, for meetings, for institutions, and for stores to actually do e-commerce, Metaverse is fundamentally changing how internet is being rendered. And if you look at the building blocks of what Metaverse needs, you need powerful hardware, the AR, VR. You need beautiful headsets that basically can connect the users. You need decentralization. You need NFTs. 
So I think if metaverse is going to be a huge trend that's being kicked off by the Facebooks and the Microsofts of the world, I don't see metaverse being centralized. Decentralized companies can scale beyond a certain point. So what that means is decentralization and NFTs are going to be powerful building blocks towards that metaverse. That's number two. Number three, I think we are going to bring in about two or three billion people on the planet who never had access to financial services. All our lives for the last 50, 60 years, the developed world has been playing with $120 trillion of assets and we've been fighting and we've been reallocating that. But I think we'll add another you know, 50 to $100 trillion that's coming from two to three billion people who never had access to this. So you're expanding the scope of actual, the universe that we play in. So as a result, I think the world is going to get more tokenized beyond just Bitcoin and Ethereum. Your equities are going to get tokenized and go to this next two, three billion people who are coming in. So to sum it up, first thing, the inflationary hedge narrative is going to continue. Number two, metaverse being powered by decentralization and NFTs. And number three, tokenization of broader assets. And as a result, the space of $120 trillion of asset class in the world is going to expand to about 200. The last question I have for you before I let Anthony dive in to close things out is in terms of which cryptocurrencies you're uh, hearing interest in from your clients and what you're helping your clients with, it feels like Bitcoin has undergone this transformation where it was uh, the new wave, you know, it was the original cryptocurrency and, and was perceived as this risky uh, new asset for such a long time. But today, with the explosion of NFTs, with the explosion of Ethereum, Solana, uh, you, you could go down the list of other layer one DeFi protocols that have, have performed really well over the last 12 to 24 months. You're almost starting to see Bitcoin transform itself into the safe haven of cryptos. And you saw Bill Gross, the legendary bond trader, come out and say basically the same thing is that he he prefers Bitcoin, you know, as a bond trader, as he might, something that's a little more slow and steady. And he'll leave the other altcoins and NFTs to, uh, you know, the younger generations. How, how is the demand for different cryptocurrencies evolving within your business and, and what you're hearing from institutions? Two years back, John, uh, essentially, it used to be a Bitcoin show. All these institutions come in and 70, 80, 85% of our business used to be Bitcoin. That's about it. They are like, all day long, they talk about Bitcoin. It's like if you say Ethereum, Ether what? No idea. No idea about the programmability, no idea about all these altcoins. In fact, it's very frowned upon. As of two months back, over the last two months, an average customer in FalconX is owning eight tokens, including Bitcoin. I never wow. expected in three years. And we serve a lot of traditional institutions. So 50, 55% of our base is traditional institutions. And even with that heavy of a traditional institution presence, eight tokens on an average. So what that means is it's no longer just the Bitcoin Ethereum show. But in these sideways movements, I think the world will coalesce a little bit more around Bitcoin and Ethereum. But once institutions got a flavor of real generation, the DeFi and like, you know, the potential alpha, uh, I, I think it'll... It, the first sign of the market going up, I think it'll it'll balloon back up again to at least eight. Uh, is the trend that we are seeing, John? It's fascinating stuff, Anthony. Do you have anything uh, more for Ragu before we let him go? I, I want to know what planet you're going to, Ragu, because <laughs> I know you've talked about it with your wife. So, what planet are we going to? 
So that's on Mr. Musk to figure out, right? I mean, hopefully he'll get us to Mars. Both you and I, uh, Anthony, within our no, 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 no. Hold, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm, an old, I'm an old timer. I like, I'm, I'm very terrestrial. I like being here. I've also noticed that Mr. Musk hasn't shot himself up in his own rocket yet. So I'm looking forward <laughs> to that as well. You may want him to do that before you head out there with him. But so you, you see yourself on Mars, yeah? Yeah, within the next 30 years, that's the hope. That's the dream, Anthony. Okay, well, I I, uh, I want to be around. I'm going I'm to be taking my Lipitor and all the stuff that I need to take to make sure I'm around. I look forward to your landing there. Raghu, what you don't realize is Anthony is actually 76 years old. He just uses a lot of uh, beauty products I'm to make 80, himself look younger. I'm, 80, I'm 81, okay? He's trying to flatter me right now. I'm not 76. I'm 81. <laughs> trust me, though. Okay, I got a lot of middle-age rage. When this, when this is over, I'm going to go down the hall. I'm going to break one of his ankles. But in the meantime, you built this amazing business. Congratulations. And uh, you talk about it beautifully. But not only that, you have a great vision for your future, Falcon X's future. And I want to witness all the realization of that. So congratulations to you, Raghu. Thank you so much, Anthony and John. It's been fun, but I have one question for you guys. Talk about the guitars. I I see three guitars behind you, Anthony. Do you play? I don't play, but those are all uh, gifts from different bands over the years from the SALT conference. So we've had Train, Maroon 5, Lenny Kravitz, Duran uh, Duran, One Republic. John so yeah, every year Yay. we have a band at yeah, Salt. So, they sign a guitar and give it to him. Yeah, so a couple of those are a few of them. A couple of them I actually have at home. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a that's one of my little fun things. I, I don't I don't play, but I I I, uh, I love the fact that these guys uh, send us a token of their appreciation for coming to Salt. That's awesome. <laughs> now we need to sign a guitar movie. from Ragu after his uh, appearance at, at uh, Salt, New York. In, in yeah, we're going to get a signed booster rocket from Ragu. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's more likely, John. I mean, guitar yeah. and me, I'm in. Uh, no. I'm not musically gifted at all. <laughs> well, Ragu, it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, it was great having you at the Salt Conference in September. We hope to to have you back at our future SALT events and even potentially in the Bahamas at an event I'll tell you about uh, within the next couple of weeks that we're hosting uh, in partnership with FTX. But uh, thanks again for coming to the conference and coming here on SALT Talks. It was great talking to you. And like Anthony said, I think you do a fantastic job, not only of serving your customers, but also explaining things in a very presentable way. Uh, it does a great you service calm, to the you industry. You calm me down on the market volatility. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also thank thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Raghu Yarlagata of Falcon X. Certainly invite you to go learn more about Falcon X, uh, whether you're an institution or or soon to be an institution in terms of your uh, your size as an investor. But uh, if you missed any part of this episode or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org/talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. We're also on social media. Uh, Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference, but we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And again, we love educating people about digital assets. So please spread the word about this SALT Talk and our uh, SALT Talk series in general. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.